What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Yemeni Mesa on the line. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Robert, man. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I, I reached out to you. I, I didn't get to meet you at um, KetoCon, but I saw a whole bunch of pictures of you meeting everybody else. I'm like, man, I missed him. <laughs> but uh, I feel like we've got uh, quite a similar background as far as just our introduction into fitness and, you know, bodybuilding, keto. So I'm I'm curious and excited to dive in and kind of flesh out the backstory here. Yeah, I came by your booth a few times, but you were swarmed by uh, fans gobbling up uh, keto bricks. So I, I didn't get a chance to actually come by and say hello, but uh, I'm glad we're getting a chance to to connect now. Shoot, yeah, man. Making it for it now. So, so dive into a little, little background, man. I mean, what, like, what was the transition from, or let's just start from the very beginning. What got you into the fitness in the first place? Like, talk about that. Um, it's been a lifelong endeavor for me. I have memories as early as being like six or seven years old and drawing, um, muscles on my body with markers and flexing in the mirror and always, you know, having this aspiration to be bigger and stronger and have, you know, big muscles. And I remember when I moved to the U.S., I was 10 years old, and um, I somehow right away got my hands on like muscle and fitness magazines and Ironman magazines and all that, and right away wanted to aspire to be like these uh, big muscular men. So I got into competitive bodybuilding in my teens and my early 20s, and mm -hmm. uh, enjoyed that a lot, learned a lot from it. Um, I might still consider myself a bodybuilder because of the way that I train and I'm always still trying to sculpt my physique, but um, I got a lot out of it. And, but I always knew that it was, there was no like future in it. I, I was never going to try to become a professional bodybuilder and make a career uh, out of it or anything like that. It was just something that I enjoyed doing and eventually moved on to, to other things, but it stayed a big part of, of, you know, my life uh, throughout all of these years. Gotcha. Gotcha. What, uh, are you are you doing any particular sport that you compete in now, or mostly just the bodybuilding style training? Nowadays, mm -hmm. oh gosh, no! Nowadays, my my sport is life. So I've got a business that I'm running. I've got two teenage daughters, one that just went to to college. Uh, but you know, fitness and nutrition is still a big part of what I do. And training for me is it's just I don't know. It's part of what I do. It's I don't even think of it as uh, something that has to get done. It's just I I do it every day. Um, and I probably spend a lot more time thinking about my nutrition and ways of optimizing my nutrition probably than I do about training. I feel like I've got training after all these years, I'm 47 now, uh, kind of dialed in and I know how to kind of tweak things and change things up and, um, and, and customize it to whatever my goals may happen to be, uh, without a whole lot of effort or thinking on the nutrition side though, gosh, that's just like, it's a new frontier and there's always something new to learn and to experiment with. And so. I probably spend a lot more time tinkering on on that side. Has your before we dive into nutrition, has your training style changed much over the the course of uh, you know your history with training? Like a lot of people, once they start training, like especially if you're reading a bunch of those muscle and fitness magazines, like I did as well, you start seeing how those pro bodybuilders go in the gym, and then you start trying to emulate that. But then that kind of changes once you recognize that you're also you're you're not on performance enhancing drugs. You can't really change the same style. No, no. Yeah, so it's changed, um, and interestingly, it I I changed it a lot early on, and then I kept it the same for many, many, many years, uh, just because it worked so well for me. 
Um, but then I, in the last few months, I've changed it uh, to something differently that I've been getting a lot of really good results from. But uh, you know, in the early days, I did the classic um, rookie mistakes of way overtraining and doing way too many sets and focusing on uh, just certain body parts and not training the whole body. And so, you know, learned all those uh, silly mistakes. And eventually, um, I'm, I eventually moved into what I got the best results out of, which was um, Mike Menser, Dorian Yates style, style type training, just heavy duty mm -hmm. and four type workouts. Um, that's how I trained during my competitive days. That's what helped me build the most muscle. And that's what worked best for my, I don't know, my, my body, my, the way that I adapt and recover from, from training. But, um, interestingly over the years, I, you know, that that's not very sustainable or, or at least it wasn't for me. It, I, I think I caused a lot of joint stress and damage over the years, just, you know, going that hard. Um, so through my thirties and now in my forties, I train with a lot less intensity. I train with more frequency and with more volume, believe it or not. So my, my 20 year old self would be listening to this right now and thinking I was crazy, but, uh, but I am getting better results out of it now just because maybe I have slightly different goals. How, uh, how frequently do you train like a given muscle throughout the course of a week? Right now, like four times a week, sometimes five. Wow. That's, that's and, pretty frequent. Yeah. And I used to only train each muscle group once a week. So I've gone from one extreme to the other and, and I'm getting pretty good results. I never thought it would be possible to actually have a decent, like yesterday as an example, I did um, incline uh, presses or chest. Mm -hmm. um, I did actual squats um, after those. And then I went over and I did pull-ups. And so that's a pretty full body workout. And then I did some dumbbell work here and there for, for some other stuff. Uh, but I would have never thought that I could have had a good incline pressing session and then go do squats and then go do pull-ups. Um, and in the beginning, I actually wasn't able to. I would kind of have to focus on one and then kind of slack on the other two. As I've been doing it more and more and adapting, I'm finding that I'm getting some damn good workouts and pushing some decent weights on, on, on all three core exercises. So uh, I'm sticking with it for a while. Shoot, yeah, man. I feel like frequency is, is often just kind of overlooked. Like people, they either train just freakishly too frequent. I mean, they, they just assume that they can train nonstop and not have any recovery time or they do the stereotypical bro split and train each body part once a week. And then it turns into this just lack of stimulation to the muscle and yep. nothing really grows, especially once you get past that beginner gain phase. Um, so I've been trying to ramp up my frequency as well. And that's made a, a huge difference for me too. One thing, and I was always anti that just because I think early on I was so overtrained and I, and I was getting into the gym, you know, split sessions in the morning and night, six days a week. And on my rest days, I'm still going in. And so I, I obviously, you know, hit a wall on that and would recover and then do it all over again and hit a wall again and eventually realize, okay, there's just too much. And so that's when I gravitated towards more of uh, less volume, more intensity, Mike Menser type style training and got so, such great results out of it that I just stayed away from any kind of volume training and to, to a detriment because there is benefits to doing more volume, just doing it, doing it the right way, I guess. Yeah, totally, man. Totally. Um, so what, what made you kind of gravitate away from competitive bodybuilding just as a, I mean, it does kind of take up quite a bit of time. So if you've got business, everything else going at you, it's going to be kind of hard to juggle yeah. all things equally. Um, you know, I, 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 I think I, I reached my full potential um, or darn close to it. And, um, you know, I took it very, very seriously for, for many, many years from the time that I was around 
think 16 was when I made up my mind that I wanted to compete and I didn't actually get around to stepping on stage until a couple of years later. But um, I don't know that if I would have continued at that pace, putting that much effort into it, that five years later, my physique would have looked a whole lot different. Um, mm-hmm. And then it just becomes a lot less exciting. And I needed to find something else that I could put you know, all my effort and energy and passion into that I, that I get more out of it. So I think that was part of it. Um, the other part of it too, I just, there's no way to make a real good living as a bodybuilder, right? I mean, there's, it's a lot of time, a lot of effort. In fact, I think I've not kept up with the bodybuilding scene, but I don't know that a whole lot of the guys that are competing are, are making millions of dollars. So I, I wanted to, you know, pursue something that I could um, also make a good living doing. So um, I just went a different, in a different direction. But it's always stayed with me. Like I, like I said, I, I don't know how it would be if I just stopped working out one day. I, I can't even imagine what that's like. Like I just get up and go to the gym. It's what I do. Yeah, it's kind of like the one solid foundation you have in your life. If everything else is just going in disarray, if you get that one, one solid foundation, you can build from anything. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. So what was the, the next transition? Is that when you started getting into business entrepreneurship after the bodybuilding? Yes. Yeah, so I, at the time that I was competing, I uh, was working with a company that some of your listeners may have not uh, heard of, but uh, they're still around today. It's called Metrix. And um, this was in the 90s. And at the time, Metrix was starting to grow very, very quickly. And right when I did my last bodybuilding contest, it was the NPC, Mr. Los Angeles. I remember I placed, I think it was fifth or something like that. I remember thinking, like, okay, this is this is my last show. I put a lot of into this show and like the guys that placed ahead of me are just so much bigger and so much further advanced. Like it just, I, I didn't see any reason to keep doing that. And then suddenly my career just started to take off and I got promoted and I had a, my first ever opportunity to lead a team. And um, it was just an amazing experience. And actually for the first time ever in my life, I, I did step away from the gym for almost an entire year. I was so kind of like, I think burnt out on having competed those years and putting so much into it. And at the same time, so excited about this new chapter that I took all of that effort and energy and all the passion that I had been putting into bodybuilding and just immersed myself into, into this new job, into this new career. And I, like, I didn't go to the gym for like almost a whole year. And in this new role, I had moved away from, um, from Southern California. I had moved to Northern California. And when I came back for a, a sales meeting, I had lost so much size. I hadn't been going to the gym that like my friends were like, oh my God, what's happened to you? They thought I was sick or something like that. And I was like, no, I'm not even working out right now. I'm just literally so into, into what we're doing and, and, uh, and how this company's growing that I was doing that instead. But anyway, I did eventually find my way back to the gym and, um, and have, have made it a, a part of my lifestyle. Real quick question on that because it's a, it's a, I want to dive into the, that chapter of the career path for sure. But with regard to not training for a year as a, as a natural athlete, did you find that when you did start training again, it all came back relatively quickly, like the muscle memory? It, during that year, there was a couple of times that I started to get back in and I felt very discouraged just because I'd lost a lot of strength in the gym. And I remember thinking like, good Lord, like just to, just to get back to where I was, it's going to take so much effort. But um, when I eventually came back, for good, it felt right. Like I, I think I probably needed a break. I had been going, you know, hard for for a number of years with no breaks, and I'm a very extreme, all or nothing type person who, you know, puts everything into something. And so I probably just needed a break mentally and physically. And then when I came back, I was enjoying my workouts again. I was going there to, you know, 
to enjoy a good workout, not just because I, I have to hit a certain PR or I've got to, you know, weigh a certain amount because I'm trying to put on some size or whatever. There was none of that pressure. It was just training for fun. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's important, man. If you don't, if you don't enjoy the sport, then it's not worth. I mean, you got to find something that you enjoy doing, or else you're not gonna be able to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, but yeah, eventually, um, I've not, I mean, I've never gotten uh, as big as I used to be when I competed, but I there's been times that I've gotten serious over the years and put some muscle back on. And I remember when I turned forty, I wanted to be like in the best shape of my life, and so I got in really good shape when I turned forty. Uh, but today, it's the keto diet has changed things in, in a number of ways for me, and it's made it uh, almost effortless to stay lean and, and be muscular um, in a way that I've never been able to do over my entire life. Like even during the competitive bodybuilding years, you know, you look amazing one day on stage, and every other day is kind of a lead up to that, so you can look your best on that day. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, in the off season, I never allowed myself to get totally out of shape in the off season, but I couldn't see my abs in the off season. Um, and then when I stopped competing years later, um, I, uh, unless summer was coming around, I didn't find the reason to put in the effort to do cardio and cut my calories and do all the stuff that I knew needed to be done for me to be lean. Um, when I transitioned to keto, a lot of those things just happened automatically without the effort having to be put into it simply by being in this ketogenic state. So being lean and, and, and holding onto my muscle and all that has been a lot, a lot easier. Yeah. It's interesting, man. I feel like, you know, if anybody's listening and they're on the ketogenic diet and they're not lean where they want to be yet, they'd probably get frustrated with hearing me and you say this, but I feel like if you've got a good solid foundation of muscle and you've got those healthy habits, like from a competitive bodybuilding background, like we do, when you switch over to keto, it's literally effortless yes. to maintain a pretty lean physique. It is. And so that's why it's mind-boggling to me how, how, how effective and successful the diet has been for so many people who don't even go to the gym. Um, mm-hmm. Imagine if suddenly they started to incorporate, I don't know, just like three days a week of any kind of resistance training to somebody who's never done it and they're on keto, they, they would, they'd be, their minds would be blown. Totally, totally. What what was the transition into to keto? Like, how did that come about? So, I had heard the word keto, and I had researched what it was when I was competing as a bodybuilder. Because at the time, I was trying to figure out. By the way, like back in my day, there was no training coaches, there was no no diet gurus. It was you figure it out. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, I enjoyed uh, researching that kind of stuff and, and trying to figure things out. And somehow, some way, I came across the ketogenic diet as a way to potentially selectively burn fat, not just lose weight. And that, that was, of course, my goal. I wanted to burn body fat. Uh, but I never really knew what I was doing. I was, you know, we were using like peace strips and trying to figure out if we were in ketosis or not. And I for sure was not eating enough fat and probably eating way too much protein, but I was kind of aware of it. And then during the whole Atkins thing, sometimes people would talk about ketosis. And so I peripherally heard about it then. But where I really learned about it and where I really got to properly experiment with it was when I was working with Plus Nutrition several years ago. Um, we have we had a, a really large R&D department, over 40 people in that team, just sitting around tinkering um, with ingredients and products and foods and trying to come up with all these cool products. And um, there were so many neat people there that it attracted other people who were into science and nutrition that would often come and visit. And 
uh, on one particular day, we had uh, Dominic D'Agostino pay a visit and, and chat with us. And on a, on a different day, uh, Dr. Peter Atia, and mm-hmm. both had similar messages to us, which was, you guys are doing great over on the protein side. It's an important macronutrient. It's essential. And yes, more people uh, need to eat more protein, but you're totally missing the boat on the other essential macronutrient, which is fat. And not enough people are consuming uh, the right kinds of fats, and they're consuming them with too many carbs. And so they basically explained to us what the ketogenic diet was, and all of us started going crazy over it. We you know, went keto right away. We got our ketone monitor readers and started competing with each other on ketone levels, which you know, we, of course, all know now it's not, not important to do. But um, I started it literally as a four-week experiment that I've not gone back to since. I, you know, those first four weeks in ketosis for me were amazing. I, I got leaner than I had been in many, I, I got about as lean as I used to get when I was, um, you know, four weeks out from a you know, bodybuilding contest and I hadn't been that lean in I don't know how long. And then I maintained it. Like I've just been that lean since it's, it's, uh, it's, it's still hard to believe, but, um, um, the, so that was awesome, but you know, perhaps some of the bigger benefits and uh, the biggest reasons why I've just not come back and it's, I, I, I love it are the health benefits that come along with it. So I've been suffering from chronic joint pains for many, many years. Um, and I thought it was just, you know, all the years of heavy lifting. And I also grew up surfing and playing other sports that are kind of rough on your shoulders. So my shoulders were always a problem. Um, and most of that largely went away um, on, on a good ketogenic diet, um, along with any kind of issues with bloating and GI. I, you know, as a former bodybuilding, eating too much food and all that, I just thought that being bloated was part of, existing and uh as it turns out it's not uh you can actually walk away with a nice flat you know walk around with a flat belly not feel bloated and um and be good and being on the keto diet makes all that happen very easily totally man and what what was the time frame on that like when was that four week experiment when that started oh my gosh let's go back what year was uh were we a quest this was going back to 14 or 15 2014 or 15 and you've been keto ever since yes that's good, man. You don't see a lot of people just, you know, die hard keto long term these days anymore. Everybody's kind of bouncing around and going back and forth, it seems. I take a, a, a very long term approach to my nutrition. So I I understand life is what it is. I understand that there are days during the year when I'm going to want to eat something that's not keto. Um, and I also have begun to better understand how to manipul- manipulate my macros to stay in ketosis as much as humanly possible while at the same time trying to continue to build muscle and strength, which is something that if I, um, you know, were to stay on just a straight therapeutic ketogenic diet nonstop, start to lose muscle. And I learned that, you know, early on when I first went keto, um, I did it for seven months straight, you know, like no refeed days or cheat days or anything like that. And it was a pretty therapeutic ketogenic diet. It was like 80% calories coming from fat. And I loved it. Like I was like, I'm not changing anything. This is amazing. I'm lean. I'm strong. I'm feeling good. Um, but I did notice months into it, it was very subtle, but I, I began to feel weaker in the gym. And I kind of just tossed it up to, ah, maybe I'm overtrained, who knows, or working too much or not sleeping enough. enough. But um, over enough months, I realized, you know what? My, my strength is like stagnant or I'm losing some strength. Or I feel like I'm losing some muscle. Um, and I thought perhaps I'm not getting enough protein in that, by the way, was like one of the coolest things too. I realized like, well, I'm eating way too much protein. I I was just blown away by how little protein I could consume and still be strong and still, uh, maintain muscle. 
but then I think I took it too low. And so that began the process for me of experimenting with refeed days, with cheat days, with cycling in and out of uh, ketosis for different periods of time. Uh, I then started incorporating fasting uh, in a lot of the different ways. Um, I've been fasting for years, but it's only it's only something that I've done at the beginning of the year for like a three day. Um, it's like a three day fast that I've been doing. Nothing to do with like fitness and nutrition, and everything to do with like mental reset for the year. Uh, I didn't mm-hmm. realize that there was all these all these great benefits that I was reaping from it. So I've been doing more extended fasts um, throughout the year, um, and then intermittent fasting, which I don't even think of it as a thing, but it is a thing because everyone is talking about how they're incorporating intermittent fasting into their programs. It's just back from my bodybuilding days, one of the first tricks that I learned to switch from off-season to pre-contest and start to get shredded was fasted training, fasted cardio. Um, And it just stuck with me. And so I've probably not been eating before working out for over 20 years. Um, So all that combined is what I would say I'm doing today with keto being at the forefront because if i'm not in ketosis i'm not feeling good and i and i must feel good that's the most that's the most important part um but there are some times when i'm going to be out of ketosis so that i can push myself in the gym and um and build some muscle and so um so i that's the, the approach that i take nice nice you do you remember by chance what your protein got down to when you were losing muscle in terms of grams or percentages of calories uh both um yeah grams i was down to about 80 grams of protein per day 80 grams yep that's pretty low if you're doing that for an extended period of time for sure yep i was you know it would somewhere between 80 and 100 depending on the day but on average i would say it was about 80 and um i i was intentionally trying to get it as low as i could to see you know how how, how much protein do i really need here um uh, and it, the interesting thing is that it's not um, an immediate response. Like it's, it takes some time to notice that, oh yes, I'm starting to lose some muscle. It does. It didn't happen overnight. Yeah. I feel like, you know, if I'm doing a prep, I'll, I'll bring my protein down pretty low. Like I think I got as low as 65 grams the last prep, but I don't sustain that low protein for very long at all. And then I'm back to a higher intake. So doing that low for, you know, months on end, I can definitely see you <laughs> see kind of a, a decrease in muscle tissue for sure. Yeah. So I'm curious, do, do you um, stay in ketosis as a year-round thing or um, are you cycling in and out at different times? Uh, what what approach are you taking? So I'm I'm strict keto all the way, man. I've been strict keto for five years now and all of my lifts have gone up. I've, I've been able to build muscle. Um, I think one of the main things for me in, in being successful with that is that I've just, like I don't keep my protein incredibly low during the off-season. During the off-season when I'm in more of a surplus of caloric uh, mm-hmm. calories, I'll basically ramp up my fat and my my protein. My fat ratio stays. I just feel much better when my fat ratio is probably, you know, north of about 76, 78% of my calories coming from fat. But I just bring up my total calories. Like right now, I'm consuming about 4,000 calories a day. So Yeah, I saw that on one of your videos. You were talking about uh, your, your, um, you're going up in your calories right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's not really – I'm not really worried about losing muscle when I'm taking in such a high – uh, you know, intake, especially training hard and whatnot. I don't, I haven't noticed any muscle loss whatsoever. But you know, when you transition into a cut and you you take that protein low, you take the calories low, you're in a you know relatively catabolic state. I do feel like being in strict ketogenic state makes yourself less catabolic, uh, you know, than the alternative. But mm-hmm. you definitely are not going to be building pounds of muscle during that phase by any means. 
Yeah, and I find myself enjoying being in that ketogenic state as a default state most of the year. That's what feels better. That's what's easier to do. Um, mm -hmm. There, uh, I would say like October, November, December, because I know that Halloween starts like Halloween candy and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that. Not that I'm eating Halloween candy, but like that, that to me is like the signal of all kinds of bad foods coming my way. I transition not out of keto, but I, I'll call it a low carb, high fat approach where I'm not minding the amount of protein that I'm eating. Uh, whereas normally I, I am being aware that I don't want to overeat on my protein. Um, and mm -hmm. so that combined with the incorporation of the occasional either cheat day or refeed day during those three months of the year, um, probably has me in ketosis, I would say 60% of the time versus all of the time, like I would be the rest of the year. But I find that during those months, it's when I feel best in the gym and I'm pushing weights and I'm getting stronger and um, I can have, you know, some more intense workouts. So it kind of worked. Shoot, yeah, man. I mean, as long as that's, that's the beauty of, you know, individual diet manipulation. So many people get, you know, hung up on one, one technique and they don't experiment. I've, I've done a lot of experimenting, so I know what works really well for me. And I kind of gravitate to just sticking with that long term. But there's other people that, you know, they, they wouldn't benefit from what I'm doing. So right. having the, the ability to just, you know, self-experiment and, and be able to know your body well enough to know what works and what doesn't is absolutely key. Agreed. Agreed. Very true. So dive in. So you were talking about how you were with metrics and then you mentioned Quest. Was that just, was Quest the next thing after metrics or what was that transition like? Uh, no, there was quite a few years between. So metrics was my first ever like real job as a young man. Um, and it was a wonderful experience because it was a, a foot in, into the nutrition industry. It was with a company that was doing things right. It was headed up by a guy who was a real doctor, you know, cardiologist, Dr. Scott Connolly, who um, I just had a lot of respect for. And so it was a really awesome experience. After Metrex, I stayed in the industry for a number of years, but none of the companies you know, quite lived up in terms of the experience and the fun that I had with what I, I had experienced at Metrex. Uh, there were still great experiences and, and, and did some fun things, worked with like Sports Pharma and launched a Promax bar. And, um, you know, for a long time, that was a great selling product. And um, uh, but anyway, I eventually wanted to just learn more from bigger companies. And, and there's not a lot of big, you know, billion dollar size type companies in our small little industry. Um, so I stepped outside of the industry and went to go work with Dryers Grand Ice Cream, um, which ended up getting acquired by Nestle while I was working there. And that was a hell of an awesome experience, just learning best practices in business um, in a way that I would have not been able to um, had I stayed. Um, and then I ended up leaving um, Nestle once I felt like I'd kind of learned everything that I needed and just started my own business and ran a, a brokering business for about 12 years, um, helping small companies that needed to get shelf space in places like Walmart and Costco and Target uh, and Trader Joe's, um, just helping them get that shelf space. and. That was a lot of fun, but that's what ultimately led to Quest. Um, Quest was one of my clients, and I was helping them to get distribution. And the company was starting to surge in ways that I'd never seen a company surge before. And they desperately needed somebody to head up their uh, sales division. And so um, I came on board as the chief, chief sales officer and had a lot of fun uh, scaling that business. And in fact, uh, just a few days ago, Quest sold for a billion dollars. So it's it's the first company in our space that's been valued at a at billion dollars, which is a pretty freaking amazing accomplishment. Yeah, Quest is on a whole other level, man. What, what do you think 
because you've seen you've been in the industry long enough to see kind of just the inner workings of different different companies in this industry what what makes quest on the other level like what have they done really really well that no other company's been able to replicate well um i wish i could distill it down to like one like thing that was like yep this is what they did um you could probably write a whole book on it but i can i can give you three um and and i would say if any one of these three things had met had been missing it quest would not be what it is so uh, first and foremost, uh, an awesome, legitimate product. Um, so I know there's a lot of Quest haters out there, and I, and I, I see people um, bashing on Quest every now and then. But at the end of the day, it's a, the best protein bar on the market. Um, you know, one man's opinion, and by the way, I don't work for them anymore, and I get nothing out of saying this, but uh, truly super low carb. It's a high-quality protein, and for most people, it's not going to wreck their stomachs or anything like that. So um, at the time that that product was launched, there was really nothing like it. Um, all that was available was, you know, stuff like Lara bars, which were, you know, clean ingredients, but super high sugar and high carbs. Uh, you had stuff like Detour. Or those terrible protein bars that are just like nasty. Detour bars, you know, they had kind of had their heyday, but um, people were looking for simpler, cleaner ingredients. And I know there's even cleaner bars in Quest nowadays, and, and people might think, you know, how, how can you consider Quest to be clean ingredients? But uh, I do think they have clean ingredients. And at the time, when you would compare like the Quest ingredient deck to most of the other things that were out there, most things had like a paragraph of unpronounceable ingredients yeah. people just didn't want in their bodies. And so here comes Quest with great macros, super high protein, super low carb, very low sugar, grain, gluten-free, and tastes good enough for for someone who's not a bodybuilder to also enjoy it. That's one of the key things about that particular product. When I say there's three things and I say product, that's one of them. Legit product that's good enough, not just for the meatheads like you and me, but for somebody who's not into this. So that's one. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't good enough because they had that year one. And there's a, a famous picture of Quest of the Quest booth on the first year at the Arnold. And it's just three lonely guys sitting behind a tabletop booth with nobody coming over there. Every time they offered somebody a free bar, people would be like, I don't need more protein bars. They couldn't give them away first year, even though they were awesome. Um, so the second component is the marketing. And while most people today understand that there's social media and influencers and ways to collaborate with other brands and um, all the other components that go into leveraging social, uh, nobody knew that when Quest was launched. And Tom Bilyeu and, and Nick Robinson, who headed up all of the marketing initiatives, did. And um, they're the first company that understood how to leverage that. And once everybody else was doing it, um, I think most people thought it was just as simple as putting up an IG account and doing giveaways and voila, you're going to be just like Quest. They didn't actually know what went on behind the scenes to cultivate such a great community and to have so much support for the brand. And it was painstaking. It was it was very laborious, and uh, but a lot went into it, and that's what allowed you know the marketing message to be magnified and spread the way that it did. So um, that and many other things, but the, the marketing was very specific and, and very effective. And then, um, and by in non traditional too, like most companies were still doing traditional whatever print, radiance, none of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Not a penny was ever spent on any of that stuff at Quest. Um, and then the third thing would be the people and the culture. So um, for whatever reason, at that moment in time, um, a lot of really good people were available and came together 
and made a lot of magic happen. Um, I don't know that if certain people had not been there that it, it would have necessarily uh, have been the same. It was just a hell of a team. Um, and the culture that the company had, it was one that, you know, made people thrive and be productive and love what they were doing. And, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool when you look at case studies, you know, of, of really successful businesses just all throughout history, really. And you can see what it is they've done that's really just been groundbreaking. And you look at Quest in this industry, and they were doing things before anybody was doing those. Mm-hmm. And I think it all, I mean, like you said in, in the third point there, it all comes back to like the people. And if you've got a good group of people with you and you've got a killer product and you know how to communicate with your audience, I mean, that's that's what you got to have. That's the recipe for success right there. Agreed. Agreed. It sounds uh, not that hard, uh, but uh, you would think more, more more companies would get that. Well, it's funny because people see all the uh, the surface level stuff. They see uh, that you know social media has algorithms, and then they automatically want to uh, you know basically just off put any of their own responsibility and say, "Oh, if if I'm not getting what I feel like I deserve, it's because I've been at some disadvantage to the algorithms <laughs> or you know something like that." And it's just it's just an excuse at the end of the day. Like it, if you have a great product and a great way to communicate that product and a great team behind you, then you will be successful and you're not scared to put in the work. I mean, it's it's not challenging in the sense that it requires some crazy formula to decode. It just you have to have you have to have the basic nuts and bolts. Um so it's cool to see companies that illustrate that and then just really execute on it. Yeah, and uh, you know, back to the culture and the people, there was you know, this was not a company that was started to make a buck. Like guys mm-hmm. that founded the company already had a buck. They didn't need more bucks. Uh, they needed something that they could be passionate about. They left the business that they were not having fun in, in making lots of money. And, and they left it to go do something that they could have fun doing and feel like they were making a positive impact uh, in the world. In. And so when you have those things as what, your why versus just, just trying to make money, uh, it's different. You're you're you know, we did a lot of things at Quest that most companies would look at and say, why would you waste money on that? And most people don't know we were behind like uh, the Epigenics Foundation and the Keto Pet Sanctuary. Um, Naran was behind the first Metabolic Health Summit and helping to put all that stuff together. Uh, I mean, Tom did a talk show <laughs> called Inside Quest. Most people would be like, what does that have to do with your brand? Uh, we had a training company at one point. We had an apparel company. And there's a lot of different things that were being done um, because it was you know, part of the culture and, and part of the entrepreneurship of just trying stuff and, you know, let's see what we can do that works kind of stuff. Um, and that, yeah. that just opens up the door for people to be creative and take risks and do stuff. 100%, man. I, that's why I love business. Like if you have a passion for what it is you're doing and you've got a good creative outlet to pour yourself into, the, the sky truly is the limit. Agreed. Agreed, agreed. So so what happens after Quest? What's your next chapter? So um, after Quest, we we got the company to just under $500 million in revenue uh, the year before I left. And the following year, Tom had decided to move on to put more focus on um, his his show, uh, which went from being called Inside Quest to Impact Theory. And um, many of your listeners might be familiar with it. And if they're not, worth checking out. Um, he's a super motivating, brilliant kind of a guy. And he's the guy that I worked alongside with at, at Quest for, for most of the time that I was there. 
Um, and then shortly after him, uh, my sidekick, Nick, he was the chief marketing officer. I was the chief sales officer, moved on to start his own uh, company in the VR world. And I felt like, you know, maybe it's my time to, to look at that next chapter. And I had been wanting very much to get into the keto space with my own line of keto products. And I had um, started to think about and tinker with a couple of different formulations. And um, I thought, you know what, this is a good time. Uh, I, I know keto is about to blow up and uh, I'm not seeing anything interesting out in the market just yet. So um, I could probably do something here that will be a lot of fun. And um, before I had a chance to do that, I had this opportunity fall on my lap that I decided to not pass up on. Um, a company called No Foods uh, recently launched. It had over 20 different products, all of them very keto friendly. And I tried them all. I thought they were pretty darn good. Um, and then I you know, met with our CEO and uh, he had put together this incredible board uh, and list of investors, which included some of the most respected people in our field, which I don't think they want to be identified. But I looked at this list of investors and thought, holy shit, like th with these people involved, like this is definitely something to be a part of. And um, you know, maybe it's got the potential to be the next quest. And um, in, in, a, in thinking about that opportunity, it, it dawned on me, you know, why would I want to at this time, you know, quest is exploding the way that it is. What's drawing me to want to do something else? And the answer was simple. I, I enjoy that growth part, right? that putting something together kind of from scratch and, and seeing it grow and explode. And the path that quest is on now is still a growth path, but they're not like, doubling and quadrupling sales the way that we were doing, which is harder to do when you're a company that size. Um, and it also had gotten so big that I didn't know everybody in the company anymore. At one point, I, I knew everybody on my team. And eventually, um, you know, you start you know, seeing people that um, you don't get to know that well because it's gotten so big. So the whole idea of a smaller company that was on, on a, a big growth path uh, seemed very exciting. And they wanted to just let me, you know, start my own uh, office here in California where I live. And and put a whole team together. And so I did. And so that was a lot of fun. Did that for a couple of years. Um, learned a lot about what it's like to work with a company um, that unlike Quest, you know, we talked about Quest was started with, you know, three guys not happy with what they were doing, not really wanting to make a buck and just wanting to do something that they have passion for. Um, no, very different. It's a it's an investor-owned company. There's a giant cap table with over 200 investors in it. And it was founded by a very passionate CEO, but he's not part of the company um, at all anymore. So it's very different. I, it's not a, it's not wrong, but it's not for me. Uh, I enjoy something that's a lot more focused, um, that is a lot more the way that we, you know, started things at Quest. And so I ended up deciding to leave earlier this year to do what I should have been doing all along, and that's to start my own company. And so that's, that's what I eventually ended up doing. And um, I left on good terms with those guys. They're, they're a great company, and they do have some really good products. And um, I think they'll probably continue to grow. You know, all their stuff is like grain and gluten-free. And while they may not focus so much on the keto community, um, they're, you know, they're pretty keto products. They're very high-fat products. So uh, they can easily be incorporated into uh, into a ketogenic diet. But my passion is in the keto space, and I see a massive, massive, massive opportunity to develop products that appeal not just to us keto heads, like you know, I call myself keto head on, on Instagram, but 
us hardcore keto people, but also to like a mainstream person who is curious about keto and wants to dabble with it, but couldn't fathom the thought of giving up their favorite carby sugary treat because, um, you know, whatever, that's their favorite thing in the world to eat and they're not going to part ways with it. So um, I think there's this, this neat opportunity to develop delicious tasting, legit keto products for the community, for all of us that we can all enjoy. Um, and even more so for those who are thinking about getting into it and they just need something to, to make that transition easier and, um, and more realistic. Absolutely, man. What what do you see being like a main differences in the keto space and the keto product market versus that of, you know, the other industries you've worked alongside? I mean, being in the keto space, I feel like the audience itself is much more conscious of, you know, quality ingredients and making sure that you're they're getting I mean, they're more in the know, I feel like about the, the nutrient density in the, of the foods they're eating than just any person that walks into a GNC and grabs a Quest bar off the, the shelf. <laughs> Yeah, so the keto consumer today is definitely a more educated consumer. It's, you know, the diet requires that you understand a little bit about nutrition and macros and have some basic understanding of what's happening. Oh, I, I run on sugar or I can run on carbs. So just having some of those basic understandings you, puts most people well ahead of the average, you know, the average American who's still confused about what a carb is. Um, or what a protein is and, and that sort of thing. So definitely, uh, I definitely see that. Um, I also see it as a really positive community that is very embracing and supportive and is going out of its way to motivate itself and support others. And um, I, I rarely see that in other places. I don't, I mean, I don't see that in fitness, to be honest with you. It's kind of like maybe the opposite. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> there's like owning and, and, arguing and debating all that nonsense, but, um, I don't see that in keto and I love that. Uh, I love that there's like keto meetups happening all over the freaking country. And if I could go to all of them, I, I wish I, I could, every time I go to one, it's just a whole new fresh batch of people all with these amazing stories about, uh, their success and how it's changed their lives and how, uh, they're trying to tell more and more people about it. So it's different than most of the other communities that I've ever encountered in, in, and or been a part of. It's pretty awesome to be a part of it, man. Like there's like, like just as you said, there's so much of just camaraderie alongside everybody that's in the community. I mean, the people here are here for the right reasons. I feel like it's gained enough momentum now that you're starting to see some companies and people come in with, you know, like very short sighted intentions, which is, it's sad, mm -hmm. but I, I guess at the same time, that's to be expected with anything that's growing. No, it is. And I, and I have some concern about it. I've been around long enough to have seen what happened during the whole low carb Atkins craze. Um, you know, a, a low carb way of eating is probably the best way that most people in the U S should be eating. So even if they never get into ketosis, just eating low carb is probably better than eating the standard American diet. And, um, w during the whole low carb Atkins craze, like had that not burst and, um, and gone away, we may have a lot more healthy population today than, than we currently do. But it, it mainly went away because you had uh, the market flooded by companies who were cashing in on low carb and putting out a bunch of quote unquote low carb products that either weren't really low carb or I guess if they were, they were like gut bombs that if you, you, know, you ate one thing, you're, you're not going to be feeling very good much later. So a lot of people tried low carb for the first time and bounced right out of it thinking, not for me. So we we could have a similar thing happen in keto. I, I'm seeing plenty of products 
hit the market that have things in them that are known gut bombs, like chicory root as a really good example. Um, we learned that lesson hard in our first year at Quest. We, the original Quest bars, people may not know this, the fiber used was in fact chicory root fiber. Um, and we couldn't change it fast enough because the amount of complaints that were coming in from people who couldn't tolerate the bars because of the chicory root was huge. So um, sadly, I, I think almost every keto bar, except for a handful um, in the market today, have a big chunk of chicory root in them. So, What are some other big red flags you've seen in some of these products? Probably the biggest one, and man, this is one that's so confusing, and I, I'll tell you, but I'm going to confuse everybody even more, and that's the fiber one. So, so chicory root is a fiber. It's a real fiber, and if you eat chicory root, it's not going to convert to glucose. It's not going to spike your blood sugar, so it's a legit fiber. It just ferments very quickly, and it causes um, unpleasant bloating and, and gas. But um, there are other, quote-unquote, pseudofibers out there, iso-malto-oligosaccharide being one of them. And this was the second fiber that we used at, at Quest. And we, we learned early on um, and ended up switching it um, that it was a partially digested fiber. And depending on your own gut biome, some people converted to glucose more than others. So um, Quest realized that early on and changed everything. And, and when they did, by the way, they got massive flack over it. Most consumers, maybe not most consumers, a lot of consumers thought, the company had switched ingredients and cheapened the bars and and put something um, with GMO in, and, and, and none of that was true. It was literally just going from something that's not quite a fiber to something that truly was a fiber, which is what they have now. Um, and uh, Quest did that on their own. Like there was no FDA requirement. The FDA totally clueless on this. Not sure they they were like we don't know about this, um, and so they, they didn't pass any any labeling guidelines on it. Quest changed the labels anyway and changed the ingredients. There's a lot of bars out on the market today that are still using iso-malto-oligosaccharide and claiming it to be a fiber on their labels when in fact it's not a fiber. And if it's not a fiber, it's a fully digestible carb that should be claimed not as a net carb, but as you know total carbs. And so um, the confusing part is that IMO, that's, the, that's short for iso-malto-oligosaccharide, can go by many names. And... And there doesn't seem to be any strict guidelines in place now to regulate that. Thankfully, some are going into effect next year that are going to make it a lot more uh, stringent in terms of if you've got an IMO in your product, you've got to disclose it as an IMO and you cannot label it as a fiber in the nutritional panel. Um, so that goes into effect next year. The one loophole, unfortunately, and that is going to be that companies that are smaller than um, – uh, either 10 million or maybe 2 million, but I forget which numbers. Um, they have two years to adhere to the new uh, labeling law. So until that's all fully in effect and in place, um, I'm going to recommend that people check their blood glucose levels if they're very concerned about, is does this bar really have the net carb count that it's claiming or not? And, um, and if they're unsure, there's one surefire way to, to know, and that's just to test your blood and, and that we all know for certain. And it is crazy what all like the black holes are as far as nutritional labeling is concerned. I I didn't have a clue, and so I started <laughs> getting into having a food product myself, and then I started diving down that rabbit hole. Yep. And my eyes were opened to just some of the shadiness going on, some of the ignorance that's going yep. on, and just like this total confusion that accompanies nutritional labeling because it is a whole other world out there. It is, it is, and um, 
Uh, it's one that's a pet peeve of mine. I'm, I'm first and foremost, I'm a consumer of all these things. Like I, I go to the store, I read labels, I write stuff down. Um, and you know, I, I add things up on labels. Half the time I do, they don't add up properly because things are not being properly labeled. And even in like in our own industry and I, and I'm going beyond just keto, like you can take most products that are out in, in the market and try to add up the calories. And most of the times they're not even coming close. There's something off on there. Um, so yeah, it can be very confusing. And it's like a 20% window companies get, like it doesn't have to be, I mean, you can veer 20% one way or the other from what the nutritional label is showing, correct? Yeah. From what, from what the actual nutritional content or caloric content is, they, they give you uh, tolerance levels, um, that you can be off. Um, and some of those are just, they make sense because there's products that are irregular. And so it's impossible to have the exact same, whatever, if you're making cookies, like the exact same cookie, be the, you know, all of them have the exact um, calories or whatever. So they give you that, I forget what it is. It might be 20%, might be 10%. And it may, it may also vary by product. But um, there's that. But there's also the just not understanding how to, how to, how to label a fiber, how to label a sugar alcohol, how to label allulose as an example. Like allulose had been very, very confusing. Thankfully, they just passed guidelines on that, which allow it to uh, not be labeled as an added sugar because that was confusing the hell out of everybody. So suddenly somebody buys a product and it says 10 grams added sugar. And if it's all allulose, they don't know the difference. They're just thinking there's a bunch of added sugar in this product. And so that's been changed. Um, and so there'll be a lot, a lot less confusion in that one. I remember trying some of the first bars. I think Quest had like their their waffle flavor. I think was the first bar that I ever had with allulose, and that was, I don't know, that was several years ago when that came out. But what what is the science behind allulose? Like, kind of dive into to that. Give any of the listeners that aren't familiar with it uh, kind of a breakdown. Sure, um, and you're right. Quest was the first company in the U.S. to ever bring a product to market with. Uh, with allulose in it. It's been used in Europe and Japan for many, many years prior to that. But um, it is, um, it's one of those wonderful, rare uh, things that come up as an ingredient um, that you may not be hearing a lot about today, but I, I promise you it'll be uh, widely used and available in the future because um, we're all trying to find a way to replace sugar in the things that we put sugar into and we've come up with all sorts of creative ingredients and products from sugar alcohols to artificial sweeteners and uh, everything in between. Um, allulose is the first one that is not a sugar replacement. It, it is sugar. It actually is sugar. It's got the, the, the chemical uh, uh, mix up of, of actual sugar. And it's found in nature in things like jackfruit. It's found in things like maple. Um, it's found in raisins and grapes. Um, and um, it uh, tastes like sugar because it is sugar. It behaves like sugar in terms of um, how it's cooked and how it you know, works in baked goods and that kind of stuff. Um, but it's different from normal table sugar in two ways. So one... It's lowering calories, so your body doesn't fully metabolize it. Normal sugar, as you know, has four calories per gram. Um, and allulose ends up having somewhere between 0.2 and 0.4. Um, everyone who is using allulose is using the 0.4 measure just to be safe. But it's really, really low calorie. 
Um, and then it has like no glycemic response um, at all. Most people actually experience a bit of a blood sugar drop um, when they consume some allulose. So it turns out to be if you want to make a sugar-free muffin and you want to replace the sugar that would normally go in there, it ends up being just this amazing replacement. So I think people will start using it more in the kitchen. You'll see it pop up. And Has there been any studies on if it affects insulin at all? There has been a couple. and. I have not been able to get my hands on anything very reliable. Um, one of the things that we've been doing is working with the folks at ketogenic.com and Dr. Ryan Lowry to head up any of the nutritional findings or any of the scientific findings that are worthwhile looking at. And that's one of the things that we looked at. Is there any, any significant insulinogenic response? And there has been a couple of studies, but I've not seen anything conclusive yet. Interesting. Interesting. What is what is your take on the whole net carbs versus total carbs? Um, what, what what is your stance on that? Um, it's a good question. So, I well, first of all, I believe in. Well, let me take a step back. So, as it relates to the ketogenic diet, I wholeheartedly believe in looking at net carbs. Um, simply because when we say carbs, we, we are talking about a broad group of foods and not all carbs are created equal. So if the goal on a ketogenic diet is to minimize the amount of glucose that we consume or glucose producing foods that we consume so that we can switch from being glucose burners to being fat burners, um, then I should be fine consuming anything called a carb. Um, that does not convert to glucose. And so that would include most fibers, that would include some sugar alcohols, that would include things like allulose. Um, and so by being able to exclude those things from my carb consumption, I now have more flexibility in the things that I'm able to eat on my ketogenic diet. So avocados would be a wonderful example. Um, I might consume up to two avocados a day. I don't know, maybe more. Uh, I put them in everything. They're in my eggs. They're in my burgers. They're, you know, they're, I put them in everything. So, uh, but avocados, if we were going to look at only total carbs, have a huge amount of fiber in them. And so the total carb count for an avocado, um, if I were only counting total carbs, I would be limited to maybe consuming, I don't know, half an avocado a day. So I don't go over my, my carb count for the day. Um, but I wouldn't really need to do that because it's fiber that I'm, that I'm excluding from there. So from that standpoint, I do look at net carbs. I do count net carbs. Um, and, um, and it works for me because I'm in ketosis and I'm, you know, I check my blood and, and it does work. That said, that said, I do see, um, I do often see people recommending counting total carbs instead of counting net carbs. And I do also see people talking about how they're getting better results by counting total carbs instead of net carbs. And neither of those things surprise me because I think when people count net carbs, often they either are counting them wrong. They're not quite sure really what net carbs are. Um, and so they end up eating more carbs than they really should, more net carbs than they should. Um, I think 
Also, if they're counting net carbs and relying on keto snacks as you know a big portion of their calories, there's a lot of shenanigans going on out there with <laughs> with net carb counts and whether or not things really have the net carb counts that they do or not is you know, a whole other discussion. But um, that could also open the door for more carbs sneaking in than than they should. Um, and then some of those foods might be triggering so it makes people just eat more and so you know when somebody suddenly says i'm only going to count total carbs it's now a more restrictive diet you are going to be eating a less variety of foods and less of some of the foods that you otherwise might like avocados like we just talked about um but i don't know that that approach is necessarily sustainable for everybody because it's more restrictive so if I'm able to explain it to somebody, I'd rather explain to them, here, here's the goal. You want to have low glucose producing carbs, and these are the ones that you need to avoid, and these you could eat. And if they have the ability to discern between those two and stick to it, they should be fine. If they don't understand the concept, if they just want to be told what to do, just tell me what not to eat, total, then maybe total carbs is better for them because they're not going to take the time to really look at a product and figure out for themselves does this thing really have three grams net carbs or is it really more? Or if it does have three grams of net carbs, how many calories does it have? Because it could be three grams of net carbs and the thing only has 30 calories. And so now it's like, wait, the whole thing is almost carb. So there's a lot of ways to get fooled if you don't know what you're looking for. So because of that, it can sometimes make sense to say to somebody, just eat total, just count total carbs. It'll be simpler. You'll get better results. So that, that was my long, long rambling answer. No, no, that's a that's a good point for sure. I feel like kind of depends on uh, each person's like where they're at with regards to their level of keto ad- adaptation, um, their education towards counting carbs accurately. So that that would make sense for a variety of different individuals depending on where they're at. So that makes total sense to me. Yeah, but personally, like I've always, even during my bodybuilding days, I've always differentiated between fiber carbs and you know, carbs that are going to be um, converted to glucose. And I've never, even when I, you know, in my, when I got the most shredded ever, um, I was still eating plenty of fiber. Do you notice that your total fiber intake has decreased? Uh, like your need for total fiber has decreased since being keto versus when you're consuming carbs predominantly? Um, that's a good question. I don't know that I thought about that before. Um, I will tell you this, I've never liked vegetables and that's the, my primary source of fiber. Um, I've always like during my competitive days, I would force myself to eat like broccoli. Um, and I didn't enjoy it. Um, today I do enjoy vegetables. I've acquired a taste for them. And one of my meals that I most look forward to eating, uh, every day is like this big kale keto salad. Um, that's got like macadamia nuts in it and coconut oil and stuff. And it's high fat and high fiber and I crave it. I, so I might eat more fiber now. I don't know. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of over the place. Normally, I don't eat that much fiber and that much vegetation, but every once in a while, I get the hankering for like a massive salad, and then I'll just go to town. Yeah. And I'm kind of somebody. I was talking to a client earlier today, and they described themselves as lazy carnivore, which kind of makes sense because they'll crave a salad and eat just eat a salad every once in a blue moon, which is kind of what I do. <laughs> Uh, speaking of carnivore, that's another example of, of course, you're going to get better results. It's, you know, you're going to limit out a whole bunch of foods and you're going to limit yourself to foods that are very hard to overeat. So, um, 
even if there was no other magical components of the diet, that alone is going to you know give people better results. So, um, and I do think that there's definitely people out there who are very sensitive to a variety of vegetables and just weaning themselves off of like the big salads that they're used to relying on makes a big big difference for them. So, I'm not surprised about all of the great results people are seeing on carnivore uh, either. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's pretty inspiring to see what people are having success with, especially in a in a day and age where you know, most people that are doing this thing have seen, have seen the success they have with it. Like we all grew up hearing the same thing of like, you have to have, like you have to have these certain parameters met. And now everybody's just like, you know, doing the exact opposite of those parameters and all the progress is coming. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be in the health nutrition space. It's always uh, fun to share with somebody who's never heard the concept of um, like what macronutrients are essential and which ones are not. And, and explain that of the three macronutrients, fat and protein are absolutely essential because we can't make them ourselves. Whereas carbohydrates or glucose, you could never eat again and, and your own body will, will produce them as long as you're eating enough fat and protein. Um, and, and to share that with somebody who heavily relies on carbs to get through their entire day, their workouts and all that is such a, such a, such a concept to blow their minds, but, um, but it's true. It's a worthwhile mind blowing for sure because I feel like more people need to hear it. <laughs> True. So, so what's uh, what's on the horizon, man? What what do you have that you're excited about? Well, um, just two weeks ago, we launched uh, my company, Pekka Good Foods, and so most of my time right now, as you might imagine, is uh, occupied with all the craziness going on um, after having just launched. So we we launched uh, two bars. These are you know, keto friendly or keto certified bars. And, um, we've had a really awesome response in the, the last two weeks. It's just been like a, a whirlwind of kind of trying to play catch up with, um, people asking about the bar and, um, orders, you know, filling orders and all that, all that crazy stuff. But, um, that's like, uh, the majority of my, my time right now. What's been the biggest, uh, lesson learned in owning your own company that you didn't get from working in these other companies? You know, um, so many lessons already. Uh, everything takes longer than you want. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I would have liked to have launched, actually my goal was to be ready and have a booth at KetoCon and we weren't able to get everything ready in time for that. So, I would still need to go to like the Goody Beats uh, get together and, and go to KetoCon anyway. And uh, we had a chance to share some bars with folks that we had with us. Uh, we had just literally the weekend of KetoCon completed our first pilot run to see if, in fact, everything was going to work on the equipment and all that. And it turned out to be uh, a really successful run. Uh, but yes, everything's taken longer than, um, than I would have liked and, or expected, uh, which is fine. Um, but uh, what else? What else? Uh, I think uh, I've, it's been reinforced to me that if we don't cut any corners and we really um, put making the best goddamn product we possibly can uh, as a priority, that like the rest will start to fall into place. Um, and so this right now is probably the, the fun part. Like we've spent over six months just in R&D perfecting this thing and then you know to see it out in the market now and have it be well received uh we we now get to have fun scaling it so but uh anyway it's exciting man like 
I've I've looked at just all the things that I've learned and and owning Keto Brick and like the things that I spend my time doing, I never would have thought that I would spend my time doing. I mean, the things that you expect are so far removed from what actuality is. <sighs> but the whole process of that and just taking it as it comes and being able to pivot, maneuver accordingly is is awesome, man. Like owning your own business, there's literally nothing else like it. I can't imagine not having just a million headaches going on at the same time, but I love every single one of them, you know? Those are, it's good busy. It's, it's, um, there may be stressful days, but it's great stress. And, um, I've wanted to start a business for many, many years. I ran a brokering business, but that's not a business that where I needed to hold inventory or where I was creating a brand or anything like that. I was helping people build, um, their brands. Um, but I've wanted to do it for so long. I, I never found something that I had enough passion for to say, yep, this is what I'm going to, uh, jump into and do until this. And um, that passion carries you through whatever crazy days uh, may have uh, or may be happening. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Absolutely, man. Well, your packaging and everything looks really solid. I mean, I feel like you got solid packaging. There's There's been a bunch of headaches that we've had with regard to packaging. We're finally starting to refine that. But whatever you're doing with packaging, man, is working pretty good. Thank you. It's uh, all an extension of um, the brand identity that we're, we're trying to create. So the word HECA, um, we were trying to think of like, Hey, what is this? What are these products? What do they do? And, um, you know, we kept coming back to, you know, these are for people on a ketogenic diet, the ketogenic diet, um, heals you. And in many ways that healing feels like magic. And HECA is the Egyptian God of healing and magic. So it was like a, it seemed like a perfect fit. And then we just love saying the word Hekka. And um, out of that has started to come out the identity of the brand and the packaging and what you're seeing on our social and um, the website, which uh, we just launched it two weeks ago. And, and I'll call it at, at its very beginning stages. But you'll see more and more of the brand identity kind of come out and, uh, and begin to unfold uh, through, the, through the website as well. I did not know the Egyptian god of healing was Hekka. That makes a lot more sense. I just figured it was... Because y'all are in California, and <laughs> everybody says hello in California. Oh, no, no. So it's both. It's both. <laughs> if, if the Egyptian god of healing and magic had a, a weird, funky name, we, we would have gone with something else. So it ended up being both. I like it, man. I like it. Thank you. Well, that's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to see kind of how the progression goes, man. I mean, if there's ever anything I could do to help in any way, just let me know. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that I want to get the word out a lot more on is that we did get our bars um, – ketogenic certified by ketogenic.com and i i hope that their program gets a lot more publicity just because like we were talking about there's a lot of kind of shady products that are out there doing shenanigans with their net carb counts or slipping fibers in that they really shouldn't be and uh these guys are taking it pretty seriously they're looking not just at ingredients and macros and all that but they're um, having the products uh, tested by a panel of people who are doing blood tests and they're checking glucose on ketone levels. So um, you know, we, we put our bars through the certification process. They pass with flying colors. And so if anyone out there is concerned about blood glucose spikes or being knocked out of ketosis or whatever, um, we, we did go out of our way to, to put that on there. And hopefully people will learn more and more about it. Yeah, Ryan, Larry, and the whole team is freaking awesome. I'm going to send them some bricks and get them certified because and I, I really respect that whole team. And I like what they're doing in the space for sure. Your bricks probably don't even need certification because you're like primarily, you know, what cacao butter, right? Like they're like almost, it's like a giant fat bomb. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely ketogenic certified. <laughs> oh, they'll have no problems passing. So 
that's uh that's awesome but yeah like it, it would be really neat if that takes off because it'll keep out like look at all the stuff that's hitting the grocery stores right now that's probably not keto um and oh yeah so much noise in the market right and so if, if people understand that what keto is and and when you eat something that's keto friendly or keto approved your blood sugar shouldn't go through the roof and hopefully your ketone levels don't plummet a few hours later so um i like what they're doing shoot yeah man shoot yeah well awesome brother again i can't thank you enough for jumping on here and talking shop with me i'm always down to talk bodybuilding business and keto it's kind of like my makes up the majority of my thoughts throughout the course of a day for sure sounds like me anytime my, my pleasure and uh and thank you for having me on Absolutely. What what's the uh, the website and, and your Instagram profile? In case people want to follow you. Sure. So if anyone is um, curious about trying uh, any of the Heka bars, the website is hekagoodfoods.com. So hekagoodfoods.com. And um, if you guys want to chat with me, I am very active on my Instagram account, Keto Head. Uh, it's keto underscore head. And um, I'll tell you what, shoot me a DM. Um, and if you, if you were able to listen to it on, on this podcast, um, I may have a little surprise for you, something you can uh, use on our website. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will certainly link out to that, man. Again, I can't thank you enough. I, I really appreciate it. If there's anything I can do, just holler at me, man. Thank you. Likewise. Take care, buddy.